Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. So we've been in Philemon for this will be the third week. I'm going to finish up our Runaway Grace series as we went verse by verse essentially through the book of Philemon um, today. We're going to finish that series today. I want to talk to you about grace as I have for the last two weeks. But in regards to grace is love that costs us something. We've talked previously in week one about how grace, which is by its very definition, unmerited favor of God. But that's, that's a flimsy definition. I think I've, I've been pretty, pretty adamant about the fact that it, when we say grace is the unmerited favor of God, although that is the definition, it's weak because it's so much bigger, so much richer, so much more powerful than just these few words we want to give to it. In fact, grace is everything because we don't merit any favor from God. We don't merit the breath in our lungs. We don't merit the strength in our body. We don't merit the intellect that we have. Literally nothing that we have do we deserve except for death because the Bible says when you sin, you deserve death. But God didn't give us death. Instead, he determined to give us grace. He decided to pour favor out on us when we didn't deserve it. Amen? The question is, why would he do such a thing? which is what we studied the first week, he did such a thing because he, he is love. Grace is love in action. God is love. It's not that God loves. It's that God is the very definition of love. If you'll read through your Bible, I tell people this all the time. They say, well, loving God wouldn't do that. Well, let me tell you, if God did it, and it's in the word of God that he did it, that's exactly what love looks like because God is the definition of love. Amen? Because he loves us, he, shed, he gave us mercy, which is to say he didn't punish us as we deserve to be punished, and he did so by showing us compassion, which is mercy in action, by sending Jesus to us so that we might have access to grace. So if you take grace and dissect it all the way back, what you're going to find is grace happens because God had to take action, because he's merciful, and because he is love. No one that loves someone else allows them to needlessly suffer. And so God extended grace. The second service, the one last weekend, we talked about how grace is love in action. That grace, because of the grace that we have, we have been moved and motivated from useless to useful. I was useless, condemned in my sin, good for nothing, but that God through Christ Jesus saved me and gave me purpose. Amen? And then this week, I want to talk to you about grace, which is love that costs. Grace should cost us something because grace cost God everything. We live in a world that tells us grace is, grace is a free gift from God. It is a free gift from God, but it wasn't free to God. 
And there is no expectation that it should be acted out freely by you. you ha it has to cost you something. You should give yourself wholly to the work of grace because you receive grace. You should give grace. You should live in that which, provide, which was provided to you through grace. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? And so I'm going to read you a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite writers. He wrote a book titled Costly, or, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Inside of that book, there's a chapter called The Cost of Grace. And he says this. He said, grace is costly. It is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much, much cannot be cheap for us. But then he goes on to say, we have cheapened it. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. What does that mean? It's when we say, you know what, I can do this. I can walk like this. I can act like this. I can commit the sin that I want to because God is a, a God of grace. Paul says, I don't sin for the sake of grace. As a matter of fact, grace motivates me to not sin. We don't, we don't bestow upon ourselves a freedom that God doesn't bestow upon us. But we want to use grace cheaply and do whatever we want to under the guise of grace. He continues by cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. You can't have forgiveness if you aren't repentant. There is no free grace. You have to give yourself completely over to it. When I tell you that you have to repent, I don't mean a flippant, God, I'm sorry about that. Man, I know I shouldn't have done that. You might as well ball that up and throw it in the trash for as much worth as that is. You have to repent. You have to know first the sin that you've committed, the holiness of the God that you've committed that sin against, and then what I like to call hover over that sin until you realize the depth and depravity of it, and then you ask the Holy Spirit to remove it from you. You know why that's important? Because until I realize the full weight of my sin, I'll never understand how vile a person I am and why I need grace in the first place. We have to be people of repentance he continues, baptism without church discipline. We want to be part of a church body, but we don't want to live by, church, by, by, by the house rules. We decide we want to do whatever we want. I, somebody comes in, they get baptized into this particular family of believers, and then when I say, hey, you're not living according to the way you're supposed to live, they're all, you're not supposed to talk to me like that, and then they leave. I dare you run your own house with no discipline. It'll fall apart. But it's not just that. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is without, grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Christ Jesus. Grace should cost us something. Jesus Christ himself told us specifically what grace should cost us. In Luke 9, 23 through 24, he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be part of what I'm doing, how many of y'all want that? Amen. Well, six of y'all. So y'all six, pay attention. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's three requirements of you. Deny yourself the things that you want to do. Pursue godliness. Pick up your cross. It didn't say pick up my cross. 
It didn't say pick up anybody else's cross in this room. It doesn't say pick up Jesus' cross. It says pick up your own cross. You know why you got to pick up your own cross? Because we all got our own sins that need to be crucified. We got our own lives that need to be crucified. My sin looks different than your sin. In the end of the day, the Bible tells us that I have to crucify my flesh. I have to take off the old self, put on the new self. That's why it's my cross. And then follow. Doesn't matter what it costs you, follow. Doesn't matter if it costs you your own death, follow. And then he says, he finishes with this. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Why are we willing to follow unto death? Because in death we save our own life. Because we have fully come to grasp what grace truly cost. Amen? Let us know the cost of grace. Philemon discusses this cost or the willingness to pay it. In starting in verse 17, he says, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This is Paul talking to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. I've said this before, but I feel like I should revisit it. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Onesimus' house. According to church history, he stole some things from his house and maybe even harmed, physically assaulted a portion of his family or maybe even Philemon. And then he ran to Rome. When in Rome, he found Paul. Paul told him the gospel. He got saved. And because there was this thing between him and Philemon, an angst between brothers which should never exist, Paul sent him back to Philemon with this letter. And in it, we see a perfect picture of the gospel. You've got Onesimus, who is the slave, the offender. You've got Paul, the intercessor, working on the behalf of the offender to Philemon, the one who is rightfully offended. Why do I say this is a perfect picture of the gospel? Because Jesus is the perfect intercessor for the offender so that he might be reconciled with the one he has rightfully offended. Amen? And so with that in mind, he says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Accept Onesimus as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will even do even more than I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. Amen. Paul was willing to pay the price. 
But Paul was willing to pay the price in a couple of different ways. Paul was willing to pay the relational price to intercede on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon. What do I mean by that? He was using the equity of his relationship to bring these two parties back together. He was willing to say, whatever he's done, charge it to my account. Take him in as a brother. What's the danger in that? The danger in that is Philemon could say no. And because you've asked him and he didn't want to, he could be offended and that relationship can be destroyed. And so, but he was willing to destroy, do whatever needed to be done, regardless of what happened in their relationship, to tell the truth to tell him, take him in. He isn't who he used to be. He is, by the grace of God, a new person, a brother to you, a brother to me. Treat him as a brother. And if he has offended you any kind of way, if you have any love for me at all, take him in. I tell you this, not just as some random thing, but so that I can build a bridge to where we are. Because we need to learn to use our relational equity the same way. We need to be willing to say, look, man, this is what the Bible says about your relationship. This is the Jesus Christ who can save you from that. Let me bring you two together so that you might be in relationship one with the other. Oh, that offends you? I'm sorry. But I'm willing to spend my equity in that way. We have to be willing to offend someone with the truth. For wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies his kisses. I, I have equity with the relationships that I have. What greater thing to spend that equity on than to preach the gospel to them? To, to perform the ministry, according to the word of God, the ministry of reconciliation to them, to stand in the gap for them so that they can come together so that the enmity between them might no longer exist, but instead relationship happened. This is what Jesus did for us. Amen? We are called to the ministry of reconciliation. And that more often than not happens within the confines of relationship. The ministry of reconciliation, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we speak on behalf of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Are you allowing yourself to be used as a microphone for what God's trying to do in someone else's life? We beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This should be our message to our lost loved ones. Tell them, reconcile, that they might be reconciled. What do you tell them? You don't tell them just some, some whatever it is you feel like telling them. You tell them the gospel because it's the gospel that is the power of salvation, the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then the Greek. And so we must tell them. There's a book out there. I can't remember the name of it. Bill Hybels wrote it. And he discusses within that book about a young man he spent like 10 years mentoring. Once a week, they would meet. 
They would spend time together. He was trying to, he, he, he wanted this kid to be in relationship with God. And so he started spending a week with him, one day a week with him or one hour a week with him every week for almost 10 years. Praying the whole time. God, let me plant this seed. Let me turn this soil. Let me water this soil that ultimately the fruit may bear and be plucked. After 10 years of this process, there came a time when Bill couldn't meet with him on one particular day, and so he asked a mutual friend of theirs to go to lunch with the kid because they knew one another. The guy went. The guy that Bill had been meeting with for 10 years asked one question of the guy Bill sent about God. That one question, because the seed had been planted, because the soil had been tilled, because the soil had been watered, bore fruit, and that kid gave his life to the Lord that day. You would think, man, I bet, I bet Bill Hobbles was mad about that. Don't be mad about that. Just be willing to use your relational equity to put people in a place where it doesn't matter who bears the fruit because it will bear fruit because the word of God doesn't return void. You know why I'm comfortable submitting my children to God? Because I know God takes better care of them than I do. You know why I tell them about the gospel? Because I know God loves them more than I do. And they'll be saved as I proclaim who he is to them. But that might offend them. I would rather them be offended here and spend eternity with me and God than to be at ease here and spend eternity in hell separated from me and God. That's a hard word, man, because you're all, man, I don't, wanna, I don't want to be that guy. But God calls us to be that guy. Paul understood the cost. But why was he willing to pay it? He was willing to pay it because Christ paid it. Because grace paid it. Onesimus, not Paul, did the wrong. Onesimus, not Paul, was guilty of what he had done wrong. Paul was willing, in place of Onesimus, to pay the consequence of that wrong. And that's what Jesus did for us. This is the beauty of the gospel that we committed the sin, therefore we're guilty of it, therefore we should have to reap the consequence of it. But God. How beautiful is that? But God. The Bible says that we committed the sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. There's nobody in this room that rises above that standard. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that your mouth is an open grave before you come to know God, that none are righteous, no, not one. That means literally what's in the side of you is death. It doesn't matter how clean you make the cup, there's still filth inside of it. It doesn't matter how much you whitewash your tomb, there's still dead bones inside of it until the Spirit of God moves on you. But the glory is that even though all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all sinners, God loved us enough that while we were sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. 
Do you hear what I'm saying to you? You're all, Pastor, you tell me the gospel all the time. It's the only thing I've got. It's the only message I have that's worth hearing. Because we sinned, and because we sinned, we are guilty of the offense. Us. And because we're guilty of the sin, there has to be a consequence paid for the sin. There's a debt that's owed because of the sin. You know what that debt is? According to the word of God, it's death. We serve a perfectly just God. Whether you like it or not, if God says it's true, it's true. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And when man committed the first sin, he said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And you know what? If you don't accept Jesus Christ, who was the substitution for that death, you surely will die. And there won't be an eternity in heaven for you. The beauty of life is that Jesus determined to pay our debt for us because we couldn't. He was willing to pay the cost so that we might be extended grace. Not because we deserve it. In fact, Exactly the opposite, because we can't deserve it, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? You're all, man, that's a lot of fanciness. What are you talking about? Let me just tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a God, according to Colossians, who didn't determine to stay in heaven and just overlook your anguish but came down here and humbled himself on a cross, even to the point of death so that you could be reconciled to God. You want to talk about spending your equity. But he didn't just do that. He was beaten so badly, in fact, that the science tells us that you would have literally, it would have shred the skin off his back to the degree you could see the bones. that they spit on our Savior. A cohort of soldiers beat our Savior, blasphemed our Savior, stripped him naked in front of everyone, and then put a purple robe on him. You guys have heard me say this before, but I think it's so powerful. And then they continued the beating and the blaspheming. And before they put his clothes back on him, you know what they did? They ripped that purple robe off. Any of you guys ever had a cut? You put something on it and the cut, the blood grows into that cloth and hardens into that cloth. And then when it's ripped away, it's like a brand new all over again anguish. Every scar, every issue, every torn piece of skin would have been immediately re-exposed to its original pain. And they said, pick up this cross, this rugged, old cross. It's not just a song we sing. They didn't polish that. They didn't lacquer that. It was, I'm sure it was just milled wood and told him to carry it across that broken back, that, sh that, that devastated back. So every time it bumped against a cobblestone, it would dig into that wound. Every step he took, it would dig into that wound. And he walked that cross to Calvary until he couldn't walk it and they had someone else carry it. And then they nailed him to it. 
pierced his side until he gave up his spirit. For what? For you. Because he loves you. Remember, we talked first. Grace is love in action. That's action. That's a grace that has counted the cost and was willing to pay it. Amen? This is the cost that we remember in communion, which is what I'd like to take with you today. When we take communion, we remember that he was despised and afflicted. We remember that he was crushed for us, that he was pierced through for us. All of this according to Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 53.10 just, just messes me up. It said, and it pleased God to do it. It pleased God. That's God the Father. It pleased God the Father to have his son pierced and crushed. Why? Because God's everywhere, forever, in all places at the same time. As much as I'm sure it racked him with grief and pain to watch his son suffer, he knew he'd get his son back. But without him sending his son, he knew he'd never get you back. And his love for you is such that he wanted you back. And so even though it was horrible, it pleased God to do it. Isn't that amazing? I try to sit sometimes in my office or my quiet time or wherever I am and contemplate the enormity of a love that determines to sacrifice and pay that kind of cost. And it's hard. It's, it's beyond hard. It's almost impossible. But he paid it anyway. And this is what we remember in communion. As they continue to pass it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us before we take communion, we have a responsibility to communion. Remember, I read to you a quote that cheap grace is communion without confession. Communion without repentance. Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, which means check himself. You need to make sure you're okay. And in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says, Don't go aligning yourself with God hypocritically because you're putting a curse on your life if you do that. So before you take communion... Confess your sin to God. Repent. Determine to step away from that so that you might be able to take the wholeness, the full benefit of what he's offered you in love. He says, For he who eats and drinks and drinks to a judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This is important. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
Did you hear verse 30? For this reason, because you didn't judge yourself rightly, because you aligned yourself hypocritically. It says, you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Can I tell you, for every statement, there's an opposite statement? If you take it wrongly and weak or sick, then if you take it rightly, you have access to the promise of God, which is that he took stripes so that we are healed. If you have sickness in your body, if you have disease in your body, if you have infirmity in your body, you have any kind of weakness in your body or anything you're dealing with, let me tell you, communion, when you align yourself with the work that Christ Jesus did on your behalf is the absolute best time to ask God for that healing. I'm convinced of it because you're saying, I see what you did for me and I align myself with it. I recognize that as this bread is broken, you were broken for me. As this blood was shed, it was shed for me. Make your promise true in my life. That's what we say. That's what Paul's saying. But first, check yourself. And because I want to make sure that all of us do this rightly, I'm going to ask you to pray. And if there's anything standing between you and God, confess it. Can I tell you, this is a second, this will be the third time I take communion today. Anything that I had standing between me and God that I'm aware of, I asked forgiveness for already. So I pray this prayer instead. God, I'm vile and I know it. And my heart's deceived and there may be something in there I'm not made aware of. Can you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal that to me so I could stand clean before you? So I don't know what prayer you pray. But if there's anything in you, maybe the Spirit will show it to you. I'd say it's according to His will that He would. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, your word, Paul tells us to check ourselves before we align ourselves. And so God, before I align myself with the work that you've performed on my behalf, before we do congregationally, God, I ask that you, you search me. God, if there's anything in me that doesn't honor you, doesn't glorify your name or the name of your son, Jesus, remove it from me, Lord. God, for the person in this room who is struggling, has a sin that they know exactly what that is, your grace is big enough to cover that. Your love is big enough to remove that when we come to you with the right intent repentantly. And God, whether there's somebody that's never prayed this prayer before or not, or it's been a long time, or just like me trying to filter anything out that we're not aware of, we ask you to forgive us. We repent of our sin. We don't just repent of it, we turn away from it giving full view in our life to the cross and the work that Jesus did there. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that by your spirit, you strengthen me so that even if I fall tomorrow and I make the same mistake tomorrow, I ask that by your spirit, you pick me up, dust me off and point me back in the right direction like the child that I am. I love you, Lord. I thank you for your forgiveness. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Having said that, Paul says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Typically, we take communion and we're done. But I want to talk to you before we do about the fact that grace cost Philemon too. Paul was willing to pay it. Jesus paid it. But there was a cost for Philemon too. He had every right in the world to kill Onesimus, punish him however he saw fit according to the law but he decided not to. Instead, he did what Paul asked him to do. Receive him as a brother, for he is now a brother in Christ Jesus. I tell you what Philemon did, because it's what I want us to do, what I want us to be. People who understand that the grace that God gave us, we're obligated to give to somebody else. I said obligated. And to tell you a story. Early church history tells us what Onesimus's and Philemon's story ended up being. Philemon did forgive Onesimus. And in his forgiveness, where he was pastoring a small church out of his house, Philemon ended up becoming the bishop over the Colossian churches, the overseer of the Colossian churches. History will also tell you that in being forgiven, being raised up as a brother, not a slave, being transferred from bondservant to family, Onesimus became the bishop of the Ephesian churches. I think that's incredible. This is the expected return on investment for grace that we act like brothers, that we love one another, that we're not only aware of the cost, willing to pay it, and that we walk in equity and love towards one another. This is what the cost, benefit is. And I thank God for it. I hope you do too. Amen.